Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As the U.S. continues to ratchet up war tensions with Russia, there are fresh attacks on ethnic Russian communities in eastern Ukraine. We were seeing reports that indicated that the Ukrainian president, President Zelensky, was losing control over parts of his security apparatus and that there was a strong possibility that those mercenary forces that are on the line of contact between the Ukrainian forces and the independent republics, that there could be a strong possibility of some kind of military action, again, with the objective of trying to draw in the Russians. And as Western journalists and pundits take great license with the term genocide, I discuss with Professor Gerald Horn the legacy of the Civil Rights Congress. Seventy years ago, they charged the U.S. with genocide against African Americans. It's rather curious that the United States would want to open the door for a conversation about genocide since its hands are unclean. All that and more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Now, Biden administration officials continue to beat the drums of war, with corporate media faithfully warning of an imminent Russian invasion of Ukraine, while failing to give any context of the conflict, including continued deliveries by the U.S. and NATO of heavy weaponry to Ukraine and to NATO countries on Russia's border. Also not explained is the aftermath of the 2014 U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine, including attacks by Ukrainian forces against the ethnic Russian republics in eastern Ukraine that have killed more than 13,000 people. It is this conflict that President Putin of Russia is calling a genocide. Those attacks grew more intense on Thursday as residential areas, including a kindergarten, were reportedly hit by shelling in eastern Ukraine with the self-proclaimed independent Republic blaming Ukrainian forces for breaking a ceasefire and the U.S. referring to the shelling as an example of a false flag attack by Russia on its own people to justify an invasion. We spoke to Ajamu Baraka, national organizer for Black Alliance for Peace and former Green Party nominee for vice president of the United States to help sort out the war of words. As a consequence of this fumbling, bumbling efforts on the part of the Biden administration to try to isolate the Russians, the opposite was happening. So there's no reason for the Russians to go into Ukraine militarily unless they really felt threatened or they really uh, felt that they needed to go to the the aid of the Ukrainians who are referred to as the pro-Russian separatists or whatever. They said, and the the Duma in Russia just the other day said, that uh, they are quite committed to ensuring that that region is not going to be overrun by those neo-fascist forces, uh, up to 150,000 of them on the contact line, uh, who are threatening to go into the Donbass militarily. So it makes no sense. It's premised uh, on the notion that the Russians are just this reckless and irresponsible, vicious warmongering nation that's just looking for an excuse to go to war is quite ludicrous. Right. 
Right. I mean, most Americans don't even understand that there's a ethnic Russian population there that's been under siege since the U.S. backed coup in 2014. But, you know, since you mentioned that region, I also wondered about the Minsk Accords because there were these agreements made almost seven years ago. I think there was a celebration of these accords on Thursday to iron out these differences and and those Minsk Accords would give these regions autonomy. Uh, these were adopted and approved by the UN Security Council. Uh, Ukraine agreed to them, but Ukraine hasn't implemented them. And that's no. part of what, what Russia is concerned about, that these accords, which would basically be an end to this whole conflict, aren't being uh, implemented. But you don't hear that in U.S. corporate media. It, all you just hear about is Russia's being aggressive, not that Ukraine has been aggressive along now backed by NATO with all this heavy weaponry, not implementing peace accords that were already approved at the highest level. At the- exactly. I mean, the 2015 agreement, uh, Minsk agreement, came about as a consequence of the coup government uh, attacking its own citizens in eastern Ukraine uh, when those citizens uh, rejected the legitimacy of the of the coup and the coup government right. and the response from the right. coup government to label their own citizens as domestic terrorists and to launch an attack. Uh, when he launched the attack, there was a military stalemate. In fact, they were almost defeated. Uh, and the Minsk agreement was the sort of compromise, the, the diplomatic or the peaceful route to go to try to resolve the situation. But the uh, uh, Ukrainian government, as you said in your com- your question, they have ignored the agreement. And as soon as the Biden administration came back into power, uh, the first things we started seeing happening was an encouragement on the part of the Biden administration to the Ukrainian government to consider taking back their territory by force. And that's when we saw the military buildup. We saw the flood of U.S. weapons into Ukraine. And we saw the, the standoff uh, that then was created and attention brought to uh, by the media in November uh, to create the crisis uh, that we are now facing at this moment. Thank you, Ajamo. Thank you so much. On Valentine's Day, Americans held vigils across the United States, including here in the D.C., Baltimore area, urging that the more than $9 billion that belongs to Afghanistan be returned to the Afghanistan people who are starving and dying during the harsh winter. The vigils were in response to the announcement by the Biden administration that it will seize or loot these funds deposited abroad, primarily with the U.S. Federal Reserve. Biden announced that half of these funds would be given to victims of 9-11, though no Afghans were involved in the attacks of 9-11. And even if Afghans were, that would be no justification for looting of a country's national treasury. As I maybe should mention, the U.S. looted Haiti in 1911. And as the U.K. is currently looting $1.7 billion in Venezuelan gold and A question, who looted tons of Libya's gold and silver reserves after leader Muammar Gaddafi was murdered? 
Also on Valentine's Day, D.C. substitute teachers continued rallying for better pay and immigrants marched to the White House on the National Day Without Immigrants, demanding a path to citizenship for the nation's 11 million undocumented workers. That was a promise made by Biden on the campaign trail, and one of the organizers at the White House used a bullhorn to address the crowd. A whole year of massive actions and sacrifices that bring us to this moment, a moment in which we see Democrats as cowards. Even though they have the power to include a path to citizenship and the Build Back Better proposal, they decide to cross their arms and ignore the immigrant community, forgetting the promises that they have made to us. What do we want? When do we want it? And finally, in culture and media, the WPFW Pacifica Radio family in Washington, D.C., is mourning the station's news director, Askia Muhammad, who died at his home in Washington, D.C. on Thursday, February 17, 2022. He was 76 years old. News of Muhammad's sudden death was shared late Thursday night in an email distributed by the station's program director, Katia Stitt, to the largely volunteer staff of show producers. Stitt said that Muhammad died of natural causes, that a private service will be held, and that a public memorial will also be planned and announced for a future date. Rest in power, Askia Muhammad. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for this month's episode of The F Word, we're going to talk about genocide. The Winter Olympics are ending, and as we mentioned on last week's show, NBC began its coverage of the opening ceremony two weeks ago with a shameful insertion of loaded State Department propaganda, claiming that China is committing genocide against the Uyghur Muslim population in Xinjiang province and almost in the next breath referred to it as a cultural genocide or the erasure of the language and important customs of the Uyghur people, even though China denies these strong claims and points to the development of Uyghur communities, including the construction of mosques and schools and the increased population of the Uyghur people, which would not be happening if there was a genocide. But throughout the games, print journalists at publications, even at the New York Times or broadcasters like Jake Tapper of CNN, made very serious and extreme statements not based on physical fact or evidence comparing China to Nazi Germany, referring to the millions of Jews and other oppressed groups killed by the Nazi regime in World War II. Now, here to help us unpack this serious topic is on the grounds geopolitical analyst Gerald Horn, the professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, as ghastly as it is to consider, we're witnessing how the charge of the atrocity of genocide is being used as a geopolitical tool in this new Cold War against China. And it might be lost on Americans as this country drifts increasingly to the right and is in this moment of like historical erasure that the United States itself has committed acts of genocide right here against the indigenous and people and formerly enslaved Africans. And that it has also murdered millions of people around the world in these illegal wars and invasions throughout the centuries under the guise of fighting for democracy. So I wonder how we can begin to sort out this topic for our audience. Well, it's appropriate that you bring the United States into this conversation. I've noticed that uh, two leading professors, Claudio Sant of the University of Georgia, who wrote this award-winning book on the so-called Trail of Tears when the Cherokee people of the Southeast Quadrant of North America were expropriated from their land, chased across the continent to Oklahoma, where they were told this was going to be Indian territory for as long as the river shall flow and the grass shall grow, but then were decimated there as well. And also Mahmoud Mandani of Columbia University. Both Mahmoud and Claudio have used this quote from Adolf Hitler, who refers to the genocide in North America and suggests, that is to say, Hitler suggests that because that genocide did not cause a flutter, it convinced him and his Nazi party that they could do the same thing, striking eastward into ultimately the Soviet Union. So it's rather curious that the United States would want to open the door for a conversation about genocide, since its hands are unclean. Now, We oftentimes refer, understandably, to the genocide against the indigenous population. But as you know, more than most, approximately 75 years ago, the Civil Rights Congress, uh, led by the black lawyer William Patterson and his close comrade Paul Robeson, filed a petition at the United Nations 
charging the United States with genocide against black people. This did cause quite an uproar, not only in the United States, but globally. It also led to Patterson being jailed. It led to the attempted marginalizing of Robeson. His passport was taken. His income fell from the six figures to the low four figures. And I think it's also fair to say that some of our liberal and centrist friends did not bathe themselves in glory. And I'm speaking of the NAACP in the first place, uh, which also joined the attack against the Civil Rights Congress and also joined the attack against Robeson in particular. But this was part of this very striking maneuver that took place during this period when the U.S. ruling class under fire internationally decided that the better part of wisdom would be to make certain anti-Jim Crow concessions to the good offices of the NAACP, but at the same time bludgeon the Civil Rights Congress into extinction, which happened in 1956. And it's not simply because I wrote a book about the Civil Rights Congress that I think that this was an unfortunate turning point in the history of our movement. But also, I think that the Civil Rights Congress is one of the unsung organizations uh, of this country, and we've been trying to recreate it ever since, not altogether successfully. I'm glad you brought up the international dimensions of this. I was listening to CNN on this past Sunday, and Imran Khan, the prime minister of Pakistan, was on, and he was asked about the charge of genocide against the Uyghur people. And this is a little bit of what he had to say. We had our ambassador, Abinul Haq. He went to Xinjiang and he, according to his observations, the picture is not what was being portrayed on the Western media. We are heading towards another Cold War. And we all know once, you know, these sides are taken, which side do you believe? Because two sides are completely different. What China is saying is completely different to what the U.S. is saying or the Western media say. So who do you believe? That's why we asked our ambassador to give us his opinion. And it's not, you know, what is uh, appearing in the Western media. But my point is that right now, what should not happen is that we should not be heading towards another Cold War. And because then there's a lot of propaganda involved and you don't know what the truth is. So Imran Khan is basically saying, yeah, you don't know what the truth is. And as a journalist who is putting on a show based on facts every week, it's shameful for a journalist to make these kinds of serious charges and claims and put them in print or put them on the air. But maybe this is the nature of this new Cold War, this new Cold War propaganda, as he's talking about. And what you're referring to back in the 50s, that was a so-called Cold War also. And the same propaganda was being used then. Well, it's not only that, but if you look at what's happening on the Ukraine-Russian border, and if you look at the performance of the mainstream media, apparently they have not learned lessons from 2003 when they reprinted this propaganda and acted as stenographers to power for the Bush administration when the Bush administration was claiming fictitiously that the Iraqi regime of Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Uh, They celebrated the speech of 
the late Colin Powell, the then U.S. Secretary of State before the United Nations, which was filled and replete with falsehoods in the run-up uh, to that the disastrous conflict. And they're doing the same thing all over again uh, with regard to Russia, Ukraine, except now the stakes are higher because they're sorely underestimating Russia, which has within its arsenal hypersonic missiles. It's not clear if the United States has the same. The U.S. authorities apparently have not read or even perused the recent book by the Stanford scholar Catherine Stoner entitled Russia Resurrected, which, as the title suggests, points to the fact that Russia is far from being a kind of cipher that it is oftentimes portrayed as in the mainstream media. But on top of that, Russia now has backup per the remarkable February 4th, 2022 meeting between Presidents Xi and Putin, where they inked this 5,000 word document creating a de facto alliance that is, quote, without limits, unquote. And it's unclear if Washington will be able to successfully confront that de facto alliance, particularly when the European Union is split, as evidenced by the moonwalking of German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who's adroitly dodged questions about what Germany will do if this conflict becomes hot. And so we're at the brink of catastrophe And sadly, the mainstream press is egging on the crisis. Well, I'm really glad that you mentioned Iraq, because when I think about Iraq, you know, it's like at the tail end of a series of these wars and invasions abroad following the genocide right here within the United States, maybe beginning in the Philippines, where you have a million or more Filipinos murdered, you know, trying to fight for their country and fight for their sovereignty as people. And I actually interviewed Abdul Haq. He wrote two books, uh, Genocide in Iraq, Volumes 1 and 2. And I remember how he was having such a hard time getting any kind of publicity for his writing and his ideas. And it occurred to me then and now that the United States, Western Europe wants to hold to itself the the right to define what a genocide is. The very countries that have gone around the globe with these illegal invasions and and just murdering millions of people in the name of so-called, I don't know, establishing democracy or whatever. And at the same time, when the these journalists were mouthing State Department talking points, they were ignoring the report that came out by Amnesty International at that same week, declaring Israel to be an apartheid state. And we have documented evidence of the killings, displacement, erasure, torture of the Palestinian people, you know, since the establishment of the state of Israel, which was brought about by itself by because of a wave of terror and genocide. So how do you think that new alliance of China and Russia can meet this new war of certainly of propaganda, the war of words in this new Cold War? Well, first of all, the so-called allies of the United States are terribly split. I made reference to Germany. I could have made reference to France. Uh, where President Macron, uh, consistent with the policy of his predecessor, Charles de Gaulle, the leader in the 1960s, has been talking about, quote, strategic autonomy, unquote, uh, of France. 
And then if you want to espy what might be a nearby manifestation of the F word, look no closer than what's happening north of the border. With this so-called freedom convoy in Ottawa, the Canadian capital, replete with Nazi flags, Confederate flags, millions of dollars of support from Trapistas, supporters of Donald Trump, the south of the border here in the United States, with the leader of the traditional conservative party, the Tories, Aaron O'Toole, who gave Prime Minister Justin Trudeau a run for his money just a few months ago in the most recent Canadian election, uh, dislodged and replaced by a leader uh, more simpatico uh, with the ultra-right. I'm speaking of the present Tory leader, Candace Bergen. And there's no doubt that these forces are trying to destabilize the Canadian government, which I'm afraid to say has not helped matters because Canada at the same time is joining the United States in whipping up conflict on the Ukraine-Russian border. This is a partial reflection of the fact that Canada has within its borders a very influential Ukrainian-Canadian community with close ties to neo-Nazi forces in Kiev. And so this is a very serious crisis. It's unfolding as we speak with no apparent end in sight. And indeed, the latest news is that a so-called freedom convoy is headed to Washington, D.C. sooner rather than later. Now, those of us with long memories also recall that when Salvador Allende, the socialist governor uh, leader in uh, Chile, was destabilized in 1973, uh, truckers played a very critical and crucial role in that process in terms of joining the military and helping to uh, make the economy scream, as the Nixon-Kissinger team uh, once pronounced it. And so what you see in Canada is a kind of slow motion, elongated version of January 6, 2021. And what this tells me is that we're entering a kind of new period where even the so-called stable countries of the capitalist world, I think you can think of no country hardly more stable than Canada, are now going to be rocked to its foundations. And that's also going to include the United States of America, I'm afraid with dangerous implications for the ascendancy of the F word. Wow. We're living in a very serious time, not only politically, but in terms of the media. You know, we were talking about how we can't rely on our corporate media to bring us the truth. We have uh, well-paid journalists or stenographers in China, in Ukraine, in Moscow, people who are dutifully giving the talking points of the empire of U.S. hegemony and imperialism. And we want to be a voice of true information and not giving information to lead this country and the world into another disastrous war like Iraq when when the American people were lied into a war. And we don't want to be a party of that. We are here on Pacifica Radio, which was founded by a peace activist, someone who stood up as a pacifist, who wanted to build a media that the people would support. The book that Gerald is talking about that he wrote on the very important Civil Rights Congress. The book is called Communist Front? Question mark The Civil Rights Congress, 1946 to 1956. And this is the group that with 
the radical lawyer, William Patterson, wrote the epic document, We Charge Genocide, which was submitted to the United Nations in 1951, really laying out the case for how genocide has been committed against African-American people here in the United States. And we want to bring this information and this perspective to you today as we hear this word bandied about by corporate media, genocide in China, this group uh, committing genocide. When the chief (laughs) committer of genocide in this world, we know is the United States, not only here at home, but around the world. And Gerald was mentioned earlier, how important the Congress was, how important they are now in terms of recognizing the documentation that they did and the perspective that they brought, not only here in the United States, but around the world to let the world know that the United States, which was holding itself up as this beacon of democracy, uh, what it was doing to the African-American population here at home. And Gerald, uh, since then, we know that other groups have taken up this banner, even up to this day in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, have used this document, used this book to carry on and to raise the same issues today. Yes. I should also say that there is considerable history of Washington, D.C., and New York City in these pages. The Civil Rights Congress was headquartered in New York City, which also happened to be the home of the two key leaders, speaking of William Patterson and Paul Robeson. And I think as well that you are correct to suggest that activists today could learn very important lessons about how to organize, how to move masses, not only domestically, but globally, by studying the keen example of the Civil Rights Congress which did both, which had credibility both at home and overseas. And I dare say that uh, one of the reasons we're in such a deep hole today is because the U.S. authorities in league with, as noted, some liberal and centrist organizations was able to drive the Civil Rights Congress into extinction. And like a seesaw, As this left-leaning organization went down, the fascist-minded organizations went up, and that is one of the reasons why we were able to speak about this crisis just north of the border in Canada with an uncertain conclusion unfolding and the attempt by the same forces to implant the same crisis sooner rather than later in Washington, D.C., And I think that what you're talking about, Gerald, also is just within that last Cold War, the effort to just smear the Civil Rights Congress fighting for the human rights of Black people and other oppressed people in this country being smeared with the label of being communist when you had the the period of McCarthyism. And we are probably entering that same type of period right now where just to talk about Black history and to tell the truthful history of slavery, of genocide, they want to call Black Lives Matter a communist front, just like they call the Civil Rights Congress a communist front. And what they're basically doing is they're giving a lot of credit to Marx and to the ideas of of people organizing, workers organizing, and they're telling people, they're just showing people that if you stand up for the rights of people not to be killed by police, to have rights on their work, 
place to have housing, to have the right to health care that that's Marxist. Well, OK, well, then I think that Marx would take credit for that. Well, what's even more remarkable, perhaps, is that a lot of the history that you read in this book on the Civil Rights Congress uh, has been buried. Uh, even historians subsequently who have tried to talk about the history of anti-racism in both New York and Washington, for various reasons, would not touch the history of the Civil Rights Congress with a 10-foot pole, because even in the 21st century, they're afraid of being smeared as communists. And so this is a very important history. And with regard to the Civil Rights Congress in New York, it had within its ranks not only the aforementioned uh, Patterson and Robeson, but the young activist, Lorraine Hansberry, who went on to write the award-winning play, A Raisin in the Sun, was part of this left-wing community. Uh, she wrote for Robeson's newspaper, Freedom, uh, headquartered in Harlem, for example. The playwright, Alice Childress, uh, you may recall her work, Trouble in Mind, amongst others, also was part of this left-wing. So this is a very important history that we need to resuscitate if we're going to be able to avoid the grim reaper known as the F-word or fascism. Hold that thought, Gerald. We're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. Thank you. 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And I'm in conversation with Professor Gerald Horn for this month's episode of The F Word. And Gerald, we were talking about the book Communist Front, question mark, the Civil Rights Congress, 1946 to 1956. And a lot of that book also talks about the tremendous petition that the Civil Rights Congress put together in 1951, the, you know, We Charge Genocide, the famous document submitted to the United Nations by the attorney William Patterson, along with the Congress. And I thought that I would read how that document starts with a definition of genocide, because the word is being so misused right now that I think that people are forgetting what genocide is, actually. So according to the International Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, genocide means any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. As such, killing members of the group causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And so that's how the We Charge Genocide begins with this definition. And so when they started to recount some of the crimes that had been committed against black people, they were able to make their case. So let's tell our audience some of the examples that they gave in that document and how they made their case. Well, they made their case because keep in mind that at this uh, rather unfortunate tragic period in the history of the United States, uh, lynchings were still taking place. That is to say, uh, mobs, uh, dragging uh, black men in particular into areas where they could be executed without the due process of law. One of the primary cases of the Civil Rights Congress involved the black man from Mississippi known as Willie McGee, who was charged falsely with sexual molestation of a Euro-American woman with whom he was having an affair. And what happens is that you see this transition because he was also executed outside, but in a grim and grotesque manner. That is to say, the authorities in Mississippi set up an electric chair outside so a mob of Euro-Americans could watch as he breathed his last breath. And indeed, the future congresswoman, speaking of Bella Abzug, the late Bella Abzug of New York, Manhattan, she was there because she was his attorney. And that also bespeaks the breadth of the influence of the Civil Rights Congress, the fact that they were able to recruit Attorney Abzug, who then went on to become a leading congressperson in Washington, D.C., and should have become the U.S. Senator from the state of New York, uh, but for being elbowed aside by the late uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a sworn enemy of black people. I think I should also mention that even though it was not known at the time, if we are to follow in the footsteps of the Civil Rights Congress in the 21st century, and I trust and I hope that we do, uh, take the United States to the Human Rights Commission in Geneva, which is part of the United Nations apparatus, that will reference, for example, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. 
whereby for 40 odd years, the U.S. Public Health Service told these black men in Mississippi, excuse me, in Alabama, that they were being treated for this venereal disease, but actually did not so that they could conduct a rather gruesome and ghastly experiment on them. And of course, that still has reverberations today in terms of reluctance to take vaccines uh, amongst uh, other kinds of therapies that are being developed to deal with this raging and ongoing pandemic. So this book, the book on the Civil Rights Congress, which we're offering as a premium, not to mention the genocide petition, which is an essential component of the story that's told in this book, they're both as relevant today as they were 75 odd years ago. You know, one thing that I think is really important about the petition in terms of documenting the violence and the extrajudicial killings of Black people is that there were two editions of the petition. The first edition was in November 1951, and the second edition was one month later in December 1951. And in the second edition, they had to do like an update, new acts of genocide. And just real quickly, it says, since the preparation of the first edition of this petition in October 1951, the following new acts of genocide against the Negro people have been reported. A Florida sheriff, Willis McCall, killed Samuel Shepard and wounded Walter Lee Irwin, 23-year-old Negro prisoners who he was driving to a retrial, which would have proven conclusively their innocence of a false rape charge. Neither federal government nor Florida officials have acted to punish Sheriff McCall for this cold-blooded murder. Deputy Sheriff Lanclos of Appaloosa, Louisiana, killed John Lester Mitchell, a 33-year-old Negro who had filed suit in a federal court seeking the right of Negroes in St. Landry Parish County to vote. No action to punish Lanclos has been taken by the Department of Justice or the state of Louisiana. Instead, following Mitchell's murder, Opelousa police terrorized the Negro community with a manhunt for five Negroes who allegedly attacked a nightclub employee who held a non-salaried sheriff's commission. So that's just two. And then I go down here, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, I believe, more uh, cases that they documented just in the period between publishing the first and second editions of the petition. So I'm always struck that, you know, we could do a show every week on new cases of police violence, uh, police murder of people just like the FedEx driver uh, recently who was shot at by these vigilantes in Mississippi because they didn't think that he belonged in their neighborhood. I mean, this is basically attempted murder, but they've been given some type of assault charges and endangerment charges. But there is still, and we look at the assault on people's right to vote. There are black people being jailed for attempting to vote or voting by mistake or uh, uh, attempting to register to vote. And these types of punishments are only meted out to black people in this country. Well, I'm afraid we're going through a transition in this country. Recall that when Reconstruction was overthrown after the U.S. Civil War, Reconstruction coming to a screeching halt in the 1870s, You then had an escalation 
of lynching. You had an escalation of organizing of Klan chapters as well. And even in the 1950s, when the United States was about to formally exit the hellhole that was Jim Crow by dint of the Brown versus Board of Education decision of 1954 by the U.S. Supreme Court, which said that Jim Crow was unconstitutional, you saw more bloodthirstiness as if the Jim Crow advocates were exiting the saloon of apartheid with both guns blazing. And similarly today, as you just sketched, uh, what is particularly chilling and what has brought us to discuss the F word is that we may be exiting once again uh, the so-called third uh, reconstruction, and uh, that is going to lead to another a bloodbath if we're not careful, but we are careful. We're going to go down fighting if we go down at all. Absolutely. And media, news and information is so important in this fight. We are in a war for information and truth. And here on On the Ground in Washington, D.C., New York, and the 25 other stations that we are on the air, we intend to be uh, in that fight to bring truth and information because we cannot rely on corporate media to bring the information that we're talking about. So, one last time, 1-800-222-9739 in Washington, D.C., 1-800-222-9739 in Washington, D.C., or go right online. If you're listening online, click the big red Donate Now button. On the ground should be in the window, and you just click on that and give what you can. If you want to pick up this book, it's only $120 to help us raise money for WPFW and uh, WBAI or $10 a month as a sustainer in Washington, DC or a WBAI buddy in New York. 1-800-222-9739 in Washington, DC in New York, 212-209-2950. And in New York, give to the number two WBAI.org. So Gerald, uh, Yes, definitely. You know, on the air, we're going to keep swinging to bring people the information that they can use because we we can't fight without information and we can't fight without understanding our history so we can move forward in the future. Here, here. Right. So I want to thank uh, Professor Gerald Horn on the grounds a uh, geopolitical analyst. He's also a professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. Thank you again, Gerald. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. You can also reach me on Instagram. Follow me on Instagram at Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R underscore Averum, I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M. Our new podcast, On The Ground with Esther Averum, is on all your podcast platforms, the new podcast, the social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. The music we played this hour included Shalala by the Ether Orchestra, Free by Stevie Wonder, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. 
I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. If you have not already subscribed at Patreon, you can do so for as little as $3 a month or all at once at $33 for the whole year. And I know that the show is worth more than that to you. If you like the show, if you love the show, if you regularly check it out, if you rely on it, if, you know, it's a part of your soundtrack in any kind of way, please support. Go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And I would very much appreciate your support. And it would mean so much to us at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can go to the show website, which you might go to anyway, if you reach the blog that way and you click on the donate now button or the, um, support donate button and you can see all ways to give.